0: You are now tuning in to the Own the Build podcast. Join C-Link's very own Paul Hemming, where each week he interviews experts from the world of construction and asks all the important questions around intelligent construction management. Hello, and welcome to episode number 60, a big number, and a big episode. Episode number 60 of Own the Build with me, Paul Hemming. The title of today's show is Been There, Done That, and we are joined by a man who is on a different continent right now, but he is emotionally here with us today. Ronan Collins is the Director of Digital Delivery at the Red Sea Development Company. How are you today, Ronan?
1: I'm good, Paul. How are you? Thank you for having me on and congratulations on reaching 60 podcasts, that's epic, well
0: done. It is cool isn't it, it's cool, thank you very much and um, very happy to be doing a milestone episode with you Ronan. Now as our listeners may have cottoned on, we generally tend to record a couple of weeks in advance, so today you'll be listening on the 28th of March, but today is actually the 17th of March, it's St. Patrick's Day, I had to bring an Irishman on, which is always enjoyable, However, said Irishman, although he is wearing an Ireland rugby shirt, is actually a very long way away from the pub today. Where are you? I'm probably
1: in the driest place in the world for St Patrick's Day. I'm I'm in Riyadh in Saudi Arabia, where alcohol is absolutely deemed illegal. So I won't be uh, finishing this podcast and then going off down the pub for a couple of quiet ones. It's uh, it's one of those it's one of those cho- choices in life where you have to uh, sacrifice certain things. And living in Riyadh, you have to sacrifice. A pint and a, and a sausage sandwich. So, but it, the, there's so much of things going on here in Riyadh. It's 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 worth the uh, payoff.
0: And yeah, it's worth it. You know, you've probably had plenty of alcohol-filled St. Patrick's Day. So, you know, you can have a one-off, can't you? Absolutely, yeah, yeah. One one won't hurt. <laughs> indeed, indeed. And so today's episode is called "Bim There, Done That." I'd love to say I came up with that title, but I nabbed it off you, Roland. But we're going to be talking about Bim because that's something that you are very passionate about see that you do a lot of talking about it before we do get onto that topic can you for everybody listening just tell us about yourself your experience and how you ended up in Saudi Arabia today
1: yeah sure so obviously given the introduction i'm irish i, I grew up in a, in sligo on the west coast of ireland and i spent the uh, formative part of my career in in dublin so i studied in dublin did a degree in civil engineering and then I spent about four years working for Arabs in Dublin and then got the urge to go traveling. So I went out to Hong Kong. So I, did a, I had a master plan when I was 26, do two years in Hong Kong, get out to Australia, do a couple of years in Australia, and then head back to the Green Island for a settle down, get married, buy a house, la-di-la-di-la. How did that Somewhere go? It, that didn't play out <laughs> as, as planned. As, as most things in my life don't play out as planned. Um, so I worked for ARPS in Hong Kong for a couple of years, which was fantastic. worked on some really interesting projects. And then in 2003, I started my own business in Hong Kong. So I actually started a, a, a company which ultimately ended up becoming a BIM consultancy, but pretty much a, a consultancy working with contractors and engineers on, on major construction projects. And then I was in Hong Kong right through till 2015. Um, and the reason I left Hong Kong was to go back to Malaysia. My wife is Malaysian. We met in Kuala Lumpur. Back in two thousand in two thousand eight, playing golf in Kuala Lumpur, we met. So, really, she, she kicked she kicked my Did ass. In the golf you? course, she kicked oh, my there ass. The golf course, and she's been kicking my ass ever since. So, <laughs> so, uh, so we went back to Malaysia in two thousand fifteen with my son. He, my son was born in Hong Kong. He's and he's a great character. He'll tell you where he was born. And uh, so he's half Irish, half Malaysian, and half Chinese, according to him, because he was born in Hong, Must Hong Kong. Must be one hell of an accent that he's. Sported. He's got a good accent. Yeah, yeah. And then so we went back there, we worked on the I worked on the Metro in, in Malaysia, worked on the line two, building the, the second metro in, in Kuala Lumpur for the best part of four or five years for a company called Gamuda Engineering, one of the, one of Malaysia's preeminent construction companies. And I was the director for BIM there. And then we had COVID, we have a, a couple of things turned down in the economy in Malaysia. And I had a choice. The the Australia option came up again. So Gamuda asked me if I would go to a Sydney. Um, and at the same time I was I was being approached for a role here in Saudi Arabia. So the role in Saudi Arabia sounded really interesting. So I'm working for the Red Sea Development Company and uh, I'm based in Riyadh and we're building some luxury resorts, a new airport, lots of infrastructure, um, a, a very, very large development as part of the, the Saudi, Saudi Arabia's Vision 2030 ambition to build an, an entirely new tourism industry here. So really fascinating stuff, some really interesting projects. So quite, quite a
0: colourful career if you look back in that, in that kind of brief summary. Very colourful, very colourful. And... As I understand it, you're working as part of the Saudi Vision 2030. Can you just talk to us about exactly what that is? Because I have a bit of a perception of what it is, a bit of an understanding, but would like to learn more. Yeah, sure. It's a it's a it's a really really um, visionary approach that
1: they're they're taking here in Saudi Arabia, and it's been driven by the royal family. Um, they want to diversify their economy away from oil to as, as much as they can. Uh, and they're looking at investing in a number of different sectors. So I'm working the in tourism, the, the tourism part of that puzzle. Um, they're developing high technology industries or developing innovative industries. Um, and part of the whole exercise is to, is to grow skills and, and develop talent within Saudi Arabia to be able to continue to de- develop the economy going forward. So, so the king is, is investing into this vision. So he's given us short-term goals and long-term goals. Um, but ultimately, it's, it's to drive not just building a tourism industry, but to drive economic growth and de- develop skills. So, so one of my mandates here is to train people up, educate them, share my knowledge, share my experience, and, and build up a local talent pool that can take on these projects and, and keep doing this work going forward.
0: Really? So for you, as you talked about short-term and long-term there is this a long-term placement view you in your mind given how you've bounced around in different areas are you planning on staying there and being part of it for the next few years so we so so, so myself and my wife are
1: we're committed to the to the three years we've signed up for so we're, we're a year into a three-year program so far and we're thoroughly enjoying living in riyadh it's it's quite an interesting experience it's when you when you're outside saudi arabia it's got a certain perception. And I worked in Qatar a couple of years ago. Well, 10, 12 years ago, I was working at the airport in Qatar. So I have experience in the region, and I know what the different cities are like. So I know what Dubai is like. I know what Doha is like. And, and I had a perception of what Riyadh was like. And Riyadh is really improving really quickly. It's, it, it's become a lot more liberal. It's, it's a really, really nice place to live. So we're, gonna, we're committed to the first three-year program, and then we're going to see how it plays out. So there's no reason for us to not stay
0: around. But we'd, we've, we've got no set plans within the next two or three years. Excellent, excellent. Well, it sounds really, really interesting, and it sounds like your career is one that has kind of moved gradually into different areas. What I'm interested to understand is, it sounds like going back to the beginning of your career where you were at Arup, I think, that you mentioned. Yep. What was it that then, from that consultant side of uh, the sector, what drew you to BIM?
1: So yeah, it's quite an interesting question. So so I was doing a, a lecture a couple of weeks ago, and it, I was the the guys I was working with at Hong Kong University asked me to go back and look at the same kind of question as to how did you go from being an, a, a graduate engineer into this BIM BIM guy. Or in Hong Kong, they used to call me Mr. Bim. <laughs> is that what we're calling you, Bim guy? Ronan Mr. Bim, Mr. Bim, Bim guy. is the official title, but yeah, the Bim guy. Mr. Yeah. Bim, all right. Yeah, but uh, no, so it's quite an interesting transition. So when I was working in Ireland, I'm, I was doing a project in Germany. We're doing, I was doing the pavilion for the, the expo in Germany back in 2000. And I was working on 2D documentation, as were the architects. We were all working in a traditional manner. And when we went out to actually build the, the actual building, it was a steel frame building. It went to a fabricator in Ireland, a company down in Carlow, in Kilkenny area, and they were using a thing called x which was the first time I'd ever seen 3D modelling, and it was fascinating to me. But it, it, I, learned to cre- I learned a really interesting lesson, is no matter how much I try to get the 2D drawings to be correct, until you actually build a model, or in other words, the first attempt at building something, you don't really get into the detail, and there was lots of issues with connections and sequencing of things, and it was that point I realised there's something in this 3D thing. And then I went to Hong Kong, and Hong Kong was like, it was like a really interesting experience because they're building some of the biggest buildings in the world and some of the craziest programs But they were using some very traditional methods and they're, they're getting approval in Hong Kong You had to go through a very traditional process of people actually signing drawings and so it was quite interesting to see this this kind of dichotomy between paper-based Processes and then what the technology could do so I knew then that I could do I could basically get a business going where I could build models and solve real construction problems um, what was interesting was in 2003 when I started the company, I gave myself a runway of about five years thinking in five years time in a place like Hong Kong, this will become the norm and, and I'll have to go back into employment. But I, I look back on what I'm doing now, what I'm doing now, nearly 25 years later, people are still trying to figure this out. So, so it's well, been really interesting. Yeah.
0: It's been an interesting journey. Yeah, no, because um, so I was at university. Uh, I, I went straight out of school into being a trainee QS and then went and did part time. University, but that would have been in two thousand nine, and BIM at that point had probably been around in everyone in construction's mind's eye for probably about a decade at that point, right? Yeah, that'd be better, right, Yeah, I remember thinking, "Wow, well, this isn't really that relevant today, but it's probably going to be really, really relevant tomorrow, isn't it?" But yeah. <laughs> we're twelve, thirteen years later, and we've had podcasts here where we've talked about BIM, um, really interesting ones, and. We still feel like it isn't quite impacting. Is probably the word I would use impacting the entire sector as it as it quite could, particularly the SME sector.
1: Yeah, yeah, okay. So particularly with the SME sector, that's probably a valid view. So so there's a, there's a cliche that's been being been bandied around quite a lot, and especially on podcasts recently, that the future is here, but it's not evenly distributed. And I think that's what you're getting to. It's like so if you look at my career and you look at the projects I've done, I've I've been at the forefront of some of these technologies and some of these processes. Um, and by my very nature I'm always pushing the envelope, so I'm always trying to get what's the next best thing and what's the best way of doing it. But then when you get a chance to go and talk to people and share your experience, you have to try and look at it from where they're sitting. And a lot of the SMEs, a lot of the smaller companies, are working in very cost competitive environments. So they're having to win their work, they're having to be tight on their margins, and our industry is notorious for this. So not only are we tight our margins, but we're also a silo-based industry. So you've got architects in one silo, you've got engineers in another silo, you've got the QSs, like, like the guys that you work Contractors, with. Contractors, subcontractors. You got, you know, so yeah. on and so on, right? And all of those guys are fending for themselves. So they don't have the ability to kind of cull together and work out how to do R&D together and, and really unlock these potentials. Definitely. Because there's too much competition. So, so if you get a big team working on a big project over a period of time, you can do things like we did at the MRT in Malaysia where we unlocked a whole bunch of really cool things and really cool processes. And and look at what we're doing now at the Red Sea. It's the same thing where you've got a big enough team with a big enough project and enough continuity. You can get
0: some real gains. Exactly. It's the, it's the length, isn't it? Which is why on the SMEs kind of schemes, you, you haven't got that length. But what was the saying? The The future is the future. here, but not everyone... It's not evenly distributed. The future is here, but it's not evenly distributed. Now, you see, for all the listeners... You'll know that from my previous conversations on BIM, that's probably what I've been trying to say, but it just has never qu- come out quite so eloquently as that. I do like that because that's exactly how, in the SME world, I think we feel, whereby clearly there is benefit to be had. What is that benefit? We're not 100% sure. And then how impactful will it be if I spend, if I take that leap and spend the money to then see it deliver, whereas if you're on project that is going to last for two, three years or you're even on the Saudi Vision 2030, which you'd guess is 10-year project where you're going to variously um, use BIM, then it makes absolute sense. And that's, uh, that's really one of the questions that we've been trying to answer when we've been talking about BIM on this show, Ronan, is how can it be something that is for everyone, not for just a few uh, at the tier one contractors?
1: Yeah, it's a, it's a really complicated one. And, and having run my own business as an SME and, and having like 10, 15, 20, 25 people employed, I, I understand the SME challenges and cash flow and trying to make ends meet and pay the bills. And it's a really tough one to figure out, especially if you're in a more traditional business like an engineering firm doing kind of bespoke projects like residential developments or all that kind of stuff. It's It's a really tough one to crack. In my experience, you've got to have, first thing you've got to have is you've got to have a client that understands the benefits and is willing to pay a bit more of a premium to get people to do the work properly. So there is an investment required. Um, It's not about buying technology, it's not about buying particular software, if you like, but there needs to be an enabler there. So typically, what we see is if you have forward thinking clients who can understand the overall benefits and are willing to not go for the the cheapest fees and and the hard bid work, then you've got some chance of unlocking it. As an individual SME, it's very difficult to unlock it if you've got four parties in a project and three of them are basically doing it their way and you're the only one that's pushing it. You're, you're kind of pushing, rock, you're pushing rocks uphill. So, so what I was doing back in Hong Kong was I was spending a lot of my time and effort doing things like this, like podcasting, going on podiums, talking, and just basically broadening people's perspective. And it's, I was really speaking to the owners and the investors and saying, this is, this is available. And, and, and it, what's interesting is they, they're the ones that win. They're the ones that benefit but they have to actually be willing to not not necessarily pay a premium but be willing to actually pay the right price. So so yeah, so it's a, it's a it's a tough one.
0: What I'm interested in among many other things with you Ronan is what it is that drives you to be so passionate about it. Is it going back to that first project where you were in two d buying steel work, and there was a big problem, which, if in three d would have saved you a lot of time, would have saved you a lot of money on that project. Is that something that happened where you thought it makes no sense to be doing things in two d we've got to be doing things in three d
1: yeah pretty much yeah so so yeah, so my my driver is to get things done better so 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 i've always been passionate about how things get built and and we live in a world where we've really got to get. Clued into how we build things more efficiently, how we do things more productively. It's like one of the issues that we faced back in Hong Kong was an aging workforce. An issue that we face in Saudi Arabia is an unskilled
0: workforce. A- an issue that we have U- both here. We have both in the yeah. UK. We have like a, a lack of skill and an aging workforce. And you've got a high cost base. So, so paying people in the UK is a very
1: expensive business. So, so there's there's all these issues in the marketplace. I, and all I can do is basically keep showing people the better way of doing it. I can't f- I, I've learned over the years I can't force people to make, make changes. All I can do is show them the better way. And, and I've been fortunate enough to get involved in projects where, and, and it's not always the ideas that I come up with. I've, I've learned from other people. And, and one of the lessons I learned recently is, is I've got to champion the people around me and, and, and get people kind of the accolades around. It's all about people. It's not a software thing. It's not a technology thing. It's all about the people. So, so my focus is on, wherever possible, getting a, a forum like this, sharing some ideas, sharing some knowledge, getting people to think. But really, getting people to focus on how do we train up people, how do we expose people to these tools, and and the biggest change I've seen in the last five six years are things like so, LinkedIn, YouTube, social media, where people have got a lot more access. They're getting a they're getting a volume of a load of rubbish. Like today, I put a picture of me standing in the middle of the the uh, digital city where I'm working wearing an Irish <laughs> rugby shirt, and and there's a certain oh I like entertainment. that yeah yeah. It, but people <laughs> like it, but nobody learned anything from it, right? But at the same time. A couple of days ago, I put up a video on my, on my, on my uh, YouTube channel where I, I was sharing some um, stuff with a, a class in Hong Kong University, and I shared that so people can read that or watch that. So there is a lot of valuable information out there, but it's getting our, it's getting people to lift their heads up from the normal rigor of, of the work that they're doing and finding half an hour in a week to just go and learn something new or try something new. And, and what's brilliant about our, about our industry, which fascinates me, is that we're a problem-solving industry. So So everybody that works in our industry spends their whole lives figuring out problems. So whether it's a guy like you who's trying to figure out how to get your software to do a better job, whether it's an architect trying to figure out a better way of laying out a building, whether it's a contractor trying to figure out a better way of building things, it, there's always somebody trying to figure out a problem. We're, we've probably got the biggest collective of problem solvers in any industry in the world, but yet we can't solve the fundamental problem of how we actually improve our processes. So it's, it's a really interesting conundrum. We've got really, really clever Why people. Why do you
0: think that is? Why do you think we are unable to solve the problem of BIM so that the future is here and it is here for everyone? I
1: don't actually have the answer to that question. And and it, it does oh, puzzle for, me. Oh, come on. Oh, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> we'll, we'll, we'll just end the interview there then. I, I can't answer the <laughs> yeah, Let's wrap this up. <laughs> <laughs>
0: it's,
1: it's too complicated. There's no single bullet. There's no, there's no single solution to this. It, it takes a whole bunch of um, different kind of attitudes and different things. I was telling somebody, we were having a conversation in the, in the lecture a couple of days ago about collaboration and how you define collaboration. And, and this is part of it, right? people have to collaborate. And, and all joking aside, I'm standing here and wearing an Irish rugby shirt. And, and I've got a degree in engineering. I'm a structural engineer by training. I, I'm, I'm passionate about how things get built. And I'm working for a company where, when I'm being, doing my job, I'm doing that for the interest of my company and the interest of my employer. But I know full well that for a project to be successful, I have to put all those jerseys to one side and i got to play for the project. So i got to figure out what's best for the project. What's going to help me get the hotels that I'm designing and, build- and building completed to the quality I want in the time I want? What's the best thing for the project? How do I get everybody on the team to play for the project? Not play for their balance sheet, not play for their, their individual discipline, not play for their individual company but play for the project. And I think that's a sentiment that doesn't always exist. A lot of people are playing for their corner, not playing for the team. And I think' little you, silo or yeah, whatever. Little yeah, little silo. So, so I think if we can unlock some of that collaboration stuff, and that then leads to a whole conversation around how do we do procurement, how do we do contracting? Because what BIM, never, BIM has never managed to solve the procurement problem. So if you're doing a traditional design, price, construct model, you're gonna. You're always fighting it. BIM is never going to solve that old mantra of you get the cheapest price, you get the cheapest solution. If you have early contractor involvement, if you have an alliance form of contract, if you have a partnering form of contract, anywhere you can get the parties together earlier, come up with a shared risk, share benefit kind of
0: scheme, then you can get these technologies to really, really excel. So it's, it's, it's like... But that's the challenge. I guess that's also quite the, the challenge as well for the SMEs, right? Because they're doing a competitive tendering process where they can't necessarily get people involved early because people won't be wanting to get involved that early. Whereas on the bigger projects, you can do that yeah, yeah. because you have PCSAs and so on, I guess. Um,
1: I have no idea what PCSA all, is, but that's, that's obviously a new acronym that's in the UK because you guys love making acronyms. A, a
0: pre-contract service agreement, you know, like getting oh, right, the okay, designer. Yeah, should, it's what we used yeah. to do back at my old place. But um, this is all very interesting, uh, Rona. I want to talk to you a bit more specifically about BIM but I suggest we do that right after the break now. Hello, it's me again. I wanted to share a quick story with you on why I co-founded c with my best mate, Chris. Chris and I, we're both QS's, and this is going to sound sad, but one night we were sat in the pub talking about subcontract tendering and we realised the industry had a problem. Number one, procurement was too paper-based. Number two, it was too time-consuming and every QS had their own unique way of doing things. And number three, perhaps most importantly, if you want to competitively tender, you need to know hundreds of the best subcontractors. We simply didn't. That's why we created C-Link. It's software to solve subcontract tendering. We wanted to remove these challenges and help the industry get better. So if you or someone you know tenders with subcontractors You've got to see our software. Head over to our link, www.get.c-link.com forward slash podcast to find out more. I will include it in the description box. So again, there's no excuses. Now, let's get right back to the show. So, Ronan, you were just explaining to me off, off the record or off the recording that you you agreed in a previous role to try to speak to people about BIM in plain language, layman's terms, to make it nice and simple. I would like it if we can do that for the rest of this conversation because my my technical, genuine knowledge of BIM isn't where... I can't well, have a help. You, you don't want me calling about
1: you out on it, basically that's what you want. You want me to help you get through the What this I'm saying is go minutes, easy as as Go easy, okay. Yeah, okay, yeah, okay exactly, yeah, yeah thanks I for Thanks for making understood. it nice and to put yeah. it
0: out there. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So you're a man with fifteen plus years of experience working with BIM specifically. I would like to understand what lessons you have learned in those fifteen years and how those lessons colour what you are doing today in Saudi Arabia. Yeah,
1: so it's it's a, really, it's a really interesting one. So I was, I was reflect actually recently on one of those lessons. So I, the first time I did a BIM exercise, I was working with a, a dear friend of mine, a gentleman called Tim Nutt, who's unfortunately since passed away, but he was a, a very experienced architect working in Hong Kong. And he was working as an advisor to a school. And they had commissioned an architect and engineer to design a, 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 an auditorium for performing arts for the school, an absolutely beautiful piece of architecture, but in a very complicated location on the site. And Tim was a bit concerned about the quality of the coordination. So he said, look, Ronan, you're, you're, you're a young SME. Can you do this to kind of just like show me what you can do? And, and this is the kind of work because there's patrons in the school, You'll get it'll do you the world of good. So I got my team together. We took, took the drawings. The consultants didn't know that we had the drawings. So we spent a couple of weeks. We modeled everything up. So we modeled up the structure. We worked out all the architecture and we started putting all the MEP, the, the building services, put them all together in one model. Now, this is back in 2004, 2005. So this is like the earliest days of BIM. And we weren't even using like modern tools like Revit. We were using 3D modeling tools. So I go to a meeting. First of all, I showed Tim what we were doing. Tim thought, this is brilliant. You're going you're to solve loads and loads of problems. Get to the meeting. and I spend two hours basically burning the entire design team to the ground. This structure is not going to stand they up. They loved this, you for that, did they? That was the lesson learned, right? So, that, so basically, they couldn't, they, some of them got up and walked out. Some of them were literally trying to hide under the table. And this is in Hong Kong, where the culture is never to lose face, right? So, so I made two fundamental blunders. One was I basically burned everybody in one go. But the second thing was that it, I, wasn't reading, I wasn't exactly reading the room. So I'm normally pretty good at reading the room, but that day I got horribly wrong. So it, it was. some of the people have never spoken to me since, so you can imagine how, how bad that session was, right? <laughs> now, it all got, it all got fixed, and, and a lot of stuff that we raised were genuine issues that would normally have been raised in a, in a kind of a, an RFI, a request for information process with the builders. But the lesson learned there was don't use these weapons against the consultants and don't use these weapons against the contractors. Figure out a way... Of using them in a collaborative way, going back to that collaboration message, figure out how to actually get the teams enrolled in in reviewing these things. So even if they're not willing to build the models, even if they're using, like we still have people using external resources to build models, even if they're doing that, make sure that the, the senior architects, the senior engineers, and and the people that are actually responsible for reviewing designs, make sure they're actually looking at the models and and spend time showing them how to use the tools, how to make it easy to find something, how to make it easy to mark something up and and get people involved. Um, And I think that's fundamental is that these tools could be used in a very, very policing kind of way and and they're very effective at that. They're very effective at creating lots and lots of claims, lots and lots of of issues, but it doesn't actually pay in the long run. Oh yeah, I've, 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 I've used them for pretty pretty big cases we've used the models to demonstrate delay to dem- demonstrate claims demonstrate variations but it's too in, during late during the design been, process no at the end of the construction process so so we've okay. i've been involved with a lot of the work i've done is with contractors so it's, so you get in and in, get into a project where the designers will say oh we've done this we've done that we've designed this thing in 3d and you look at the models and going you haven't really figured out the coordination. You've got the design. You can see the building in 3D, but you still haven't solved the coordination problems that we're going to have to solve to build it. And then and then they start changing things. So the smart contractors can actually use these tools to record change, record variation, to measure additional material, measure change. And then and then they turn around. And, and going back to the earlier comment about we try and get the owners to buy into this process. And, and in a couple of cases, the owners done just that. They said, right, we're going to specify these processes. We're going to write it into our contracts that the team are going to work in these tools. And at the end of the building, they're getting these huge claims coming back from the contractor with hundreds and hundreds of images and, and, and supporting information from the models, basically with massive claims for variations. And, and they're going, what on earth has gone wrong? Why, why is something that was promised to me to help me out
0: being used for me to get my checkbook out? And, 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 and it's hurting me badly. Really, yeah no, I can imagine that, and you touched on coordination there now coordination with the design team two d or three d it's quite the challenge either way how do How do you use BIM to improve coordination so there's there's stages that you have to get through right, so
1: as you're designing as you're developing a design, you're not going to be putting in all the fine detail of flanges and and dampers and hangers and everything else, you have to know where you are on the journey along the design. And you have to try and get the design complete as much as possible. So if you can get the, the, the general building layouts figured out and you're not changing room sizes or floor levels or room layouts, then you can start adding in more detail and getting into the finer, finer coordination issues where you can start looking at where the, pipes are, where the pipes are running, where the cable trays are going across. So coordination is, a, is an iterative game. Um, somebody actually described it once like carving a statue. So if you have a big lump of marble and you're trying to carve out a a, a kind of statue of Paul, you start off and you shape out the head and the body and then you figure out where the arms are. And and then as time goes on, you add more and more detail. The the challenge in our industry is that as you start to chip away at the the detail of the face, the owner turns around and says, actually, you know what, I I want him looking the other way. And then all of a sudden, I don't want statue- it to look like Paul. That is, yeah, want- <laughs> is disgraceful. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Paul's not that tall, for God's sake. So it's so <laughs> definitely these- not, definitely not. <laughs> so you have these challenges where you, you 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 don't really want to get stuck into detail too too early. But then what we're seeing in the industry is that the consultants are are doing their damnedest to get this figured out, and then they're being are being held to deadlines around getting things out for tender, getting documents ready for, t- for pricing, and, and then it goes out to the marketplace, and it the, d- the details are just not there. So then the question becomes, who does that detailing? Is it the contractors, and, and how, how are they best placed to do it? So, so one, one of the challenges we're now facing is we've got an industry where there, there's been some experience with BIM, but not a huge amount. And given the scale of what's in the Saudi Arabia 2030 vision, there's a lot of upskilling that we have to get, get on with in the industry. And it's not just about upskilling the architects and the engineers. It's about upskilling the subcontractors, like the mechanical contractors and the electrical contractors. Because ultimately, the guys who know how to build buildings – are not the design consultants. It's the tradesmen. So so if you ever want to see something if you ever see if you ever want to see other things get built, go and spend time on a site. And I think that's the other thing is the 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 architects and the engineers of twenty twenty two and twenty twenty the last five, ten years, it's very it's very unusual for you to see an engineer with scuffed boots or or dusty shoes. Or, and even less usual for an architect. They they seem to have Kind of curtail themselves to office life and, and rely entirely on the on the contractors to get things done. It's not true for every architect, it's not true for every engineer, but. Of course, yeah. It's, it's, a, it's an no, issue. That,
0: that, that, that's, that's my experience as well. I obviously was working at a specialist subcontractors for my entire career, curtain walling, building envelope. And if you really want to understand how things are done specifically, it is in those organizations who are actually designing it, manufacturing it, delivering it on site, building it on site. It's those companies that really know exactly how you do it. Just going back to BIM, though, with coordination. So your chiselling statue... Yeah, um, analogy. Analogy, yeah. Forget about it being me. That is a grotesque thought. <laughs> but that analogy... I know you like the idea, though. I know, I know you like the idea I of statue. I do, yeah, I do. Oh, I'm yeah. thinking about getting one in the house, actually. Um, <laughs> but if th- that, that analogy makes perfect sense to me, whether it's with BIM or without BIM to some degree. How does BIM make it better? So it's a it's a digital
1: statue, if you will. So so the advantage in that environment where you have BIM or where the where BIM has been sold as the advantage is that you can start chiseling a lot quicker. And if there is a change, it should be quicker to make the change in the digital environment before it starts affecting the physical environment. So so the promise of BIM has always been that you can do prototyping faster, you can do design change faster, you can create alternatives faster. But the irony of it is, and, and actually I looked at this recently, there was, a, there was a video that was produced by one of the vendors back in 2001, 2002, and they were showing people rerouting ductwork and doing measurement on site and how quickly they could actually reroute the pipework and very clever stuff. And the, the, the proposition then was the same, was that they can reduce the drawing hours office, they can reduce the amount of time they were doing CAD files. The problem is that everybody bought into this idea that BIM was gonna be quicker to prototype, quicker to make drawings, so in the, in the cost-competitive environment they all operate in, rather than actually investing the time into better quality, they just started chopping out all one. the hours. In 2001, 20 years yeah. ago, they started chopping out all the hours. So consultants uh-huh. started realizing cut their drawing office costs in half because they can do the drawings faster. But the problem was that they cut the drawing office in half, but they didn't, the, the quality went down the drains as well because they didn't train the guys how to use the platforms and how to get the efficiency out of the platforms. So nobody ever managed to figure out how to unlock the double efficiency but all the vendors were going around and said, oh, yeah, we can cut your office hours in half. So, so this was the challenge, right? So in terms of a statue, it's like a digital carving mechanism. Um, but people get way too kind of excited about how many times they can do an iteration. And, and then you've got things like parametric modeling and people plug in equations into things like Grasshopper and, and all these other elephants and rhinos and all these other software tools. And all they're doing is pushing, they're just pushing this, the, the stuff around, but they're not getting down to a final product that can be built.
0: So if, Yeah. If I go back to the design meetings that I used to sit in, where, yeah. I, like I say, I was a specialist subcontractor doing the envelope. So they were always quite intense meetings whereby you'd have architect, you'd have M&E engineer, you'd have thermal, acoustic engineers, potentially. There's a lot of consultants in the room, along with specialist subcontractor, main contractor. I was a QS. There would also be a project manager, design manager for my business. So there'd be 10, 15 people in those meetings. And at times... What would be happening is people would be getting out printed drawings and like sketching on them and saying, oh, maybe we could do this, maybe we could do that and debating it. Are you able to, are you going to meetings now where that kind of thought and coordination is actually happening on the 3D model together yeah it has to be
1: so if you if, if you're working on a project with ronald collins and you turn up at a meeting with paper drawings and you haven't looked at the model you're you're already on <laughs> the back foot so,
0: i will not be coming to a meeting with paper <laughs> drawings but no but is that i know that's, that's it's, it's a model driven process eight, so, nine, so 10 we, years, but we, we have a, big we have jobs have I was working process. on as well they were not yeah, they were yeah. not unfunded projects they yeah. were big projects big teams and big companies on them but it just goes to show um, that that's still the mentality let me give you a better definition for bim so, so so, the, the, the actual,
1: the, the, the proper definition is building information modeling or building information management, depending on who you speak to, right? The best definition I ever came across was best if managed. Right, okay. And it was coined by a project manager on an airport project. And whenever he ran a meeting, and he ran meetings continuously, like a guy called Richard Ellis, he would not run a meeting unless there was somebody there that could actually facilitate a discussion around the model. And we were doing exactly what you described, looking at cladding systems, looking at steelwork systems, looking at mechanical systems. And he would not sign off on decisions, shop drawings, variations, or anything else, unless it can be demonstrated to him in the model that it was either coordinated or it was an issue that had to be sent back to the designers to resolve. But he made the model the fulcrum of every decision that was made on that project. So, so, And it was around that best if managed. If you can manage the process... And you can make the best use of the tools available. That's your success, that's your road to success. So so if I go into a meeting now where I know there's models available and I see guys pouring over drawings or kind of wishy washy discussions, they're in trouble. They're not not that they're in trouble. Going going back to this idea, I'm not out to catch them out. I'm not trying. To, I'm not trying to put someone in the corner. I'll just fire up. We've got a, a platform here called BIM 360. All the models there. I'll just fire up the platform and go and go. And guys, ha, can we have a quick look at this in the model and see if we can see if we can solve this and see if we can get our head around this. And, and, and then all of a sudden it becomes this discussion around, okay, well, this is, this is actually a better way of having a conversation, particularly for people who are not used to the, looking at the different drawings. So if you have an architect and they're looking at mechanical drawings, they can probably figure it out. But some of our, some of our leadership are, are not from that domain. They've come from like landscaping backgrounds and, and hospitality backgrounds. And, and it's easier for them to understand the conundrum in 3D than it is for them
0: on a, a drawing. This is where I get it, right? This is where I get it because... I'm not an overly technical, design-minded QS, right? I knew my way around curtain-walling, cladding. I I understood the drawings. I'd looked at so many of them. It made sense to me. It resonated with me. If you put me in front of a services drawing, M&E drawing, it's going to take me quite a while to get to the point where I'm understanding. But if you put it in front of me in 3D, I can imagine I can be there a lot more quickly.
1: You can figure it out pretty quick because you know what you're looking at and you can understand the context of what you're looking at. Yeah, but you, but you have an understanding. You, you, and the good thing is anybody who's been in iron industry for five or ten years who's got any nouns at all, if something doesn't look right in a model, 99 times out of 100, it's not right. So, so the great thing with modeling is if, it's, if the guys building the models have, are, have followed any kind of quality control at all, if they've generated models where it just doesn't look like it's going to fit together or it clearly doesn't fit together, if it's a problem in the model, it's going to be a problem on the site. So, so the thing that we discovered years ago is if you can fix the models and you can remove the coordination issues, you can get the pipe to go under the duct or you can get the duct to go through the wall or you can make sure the thing's in the right place, every problem resolved in the model is less, is a le- is a, a less problems on site. I'm not saying that you're going to have a problem-free site. That's not what I'm saying. But if you, can, if you can resolve issues in the models and you can resolve details in the models, you're reducing your risk of having problems when you get to the
0: job site. Makes perfect sense, makes perfect, perfect sense for you. I'm Mm. I'm, starting to sell me here. It's that Irish, it's that lovely green. I'm not trying to sell you anything. I'm not trying to sell you anything. I'm not not saying that you're trying to sell me anything per se, but I'm starting to reflect on my own experiences and frustrations and starting to realize the opportunity that there is there for a collaborative, coordinated design team as opposed to quite the opposite which is quite often what you've got even if that wasn't always the intent we obviously at c-link we spend a lot of time focusing on procurement and how we can improve the way the industry procures you talked earlier only briefly about bim and procurement how how do you see bim impacting procurement today and then in the longer term
1: it's probably the biggest un Unlocked potential that we've got in the industry right now is the link between what's in the models and how we price and procure buildings and in terms of how we quantify and estimate buildings. So the the industry is still based on a, a kind of a traditional method of measurement. So depend, depending who you speak to, again, there's, there's different levels of, of application. But essentially... We, we, we use in the red sea a, a thing called dynamic cost modeling where basically every two weeks we get the cost consultants to use whatever information they can from the models to keep their bill of quantities reasonably up to date it's been a difficult thing to get to work it's been a challenge and um, we're getting there we're, we've still got lots of things we can improve but just getting people to getting the commercial team to trust that what they can lift out of the model is an actual quantity that's a, that's a real number and not apply a 15% kind of f- fluff factor, if you will, and, or a buffer or a safety factor, whichever language you prefer. So getting people to actually go, yeah, that quantity is right. And and the challenge there is that the way we do measurement, like an area-based measurement, it doesn't tally with a very accurate model. And then the other issue is that the models can be detailed in such a way that they don't actually align with the standard method of measurement. So renders, like if you render a wall in a, in a 3D modeling software, if you don't know what you're doing, you'll just run the render from st- floor to structure of software. But in the, re- in the real world, they'll run, they'll run it over the ceiling level, and that's all they'll do, and that's all you measure in price. So so there's, there's a level of detailing that's nearly required in modeling to get a good bill of quantities, but it's a really, really big potential. And again, it goes back to the silos. If we If we continue to have the QSs working in isolation from the design consultants, we'll never unlock it. But we're seeing more and more people like the RICS co- collaborating with the, the engineering fraternity and the architectural fraternity to try and come up with better ways of doing it. But it's, it's a really difficult, it's a difficult puzzle to solve. And, and I've done a few exercises where I've measured floor areas or concrete volumes. And I've been able to tally what's in the models to the actual dockets that came in on the job site in terms of like how much concrete poured or how much stuff was delivered. But when you try and tally that back to the bill of quantities and the method of measurement, it becomes a much more
0: difficult exercise. So there's a lot of potential unlock. But so you have in the model, it says you've got X uh, cubic meters of concrete, you've got X square meters of cladding or whatever it is. I'm guessing that that is relatively extractable data, but then it's relaying that to NRM or whatever as a standard method of measurement. But then you've also got to make sure that if, like if, like, I'm a structural engineer by
1: training, right? So the grade of concrete in a column is different to the grade of concrete in a wall and it's different to the grade of concrete in a slab. So if if the guys building the models have just used generic concrete in the model, then the QSs are going to really struggle to figure out what the actual quantums are unless they go through element by element. But if the modeling team have set out at the beginning and started putting in deliberately the definitions of all the different types into the model, you can start to get some really good, valuable data. So I it also imagine, comes down to that. I can imagine, surely that's, yeah. Surely that's quite easy to do, isn't it, if it's just a mindset at the start? Yeah, but it's a, it's a thing about time and money, right? So if you, if you start asking a consulting engineer to start adding in information that they're going to say is in a spec sheet, or they're going to say, well, that's, that's the QS's job. See, see, the problem is that sometimes the information that one person needs is better put into the model by a different person. But, the, but the other, it's not in anybody's interest. So if you're the guy putting the data in, but you're never going to use the data it's your hours that are being, that are being absorbed. Yeah, exactly. So again, it goes back to it goes, goes back, back to, that to, to Team, silence, sp- team sport, yeah. 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 So if you can get a team collaborating where you can get everybody kind of like playing the same game for the project and not for their balance sheet,
0: then you can start to unlock these potentials. And that's exactly the job that you have in, in your role, I guess, is trying to get that team in, getting that buy-in and, and so on. Now, fascinating conversation. One of my last questions that I wanted to ask you. So in a few weeks' time, I am going to be interviewing head of architecture for the UK government. I'm really looking forward to having her on the show. Now, we've talked about BIM a lot, and I know that you're in Saudi Arabia and you're an Irishman. So the UK government's uh, approach to architecture is probably not the highest thing on your agenda. But I'm interested to know what you would ask her about BIM and about implementation of BIM if you had the opportunity to do so.
1: I think the question that we need to be putting to the, the leadership is basically, what, what's their vision for addressing the long term issues in our industry around training, skills development and, and, and getting to the root of these issues? I, I still think that training and education is the, is the real way to unlock some of these potentials. And, and what can the government do to create opportunity for people to collaborate beyond their normal silos? And, and what, can they, what kind of environments can they create for people to collaborate? Because we're all facing major challenges, whichever way you look at it, whether it's an aging industry, an unskilled industry, or just the, the bigger global issues around environmental issues and carbon reduction and everything else. If we really want to unlock it, we need the governments and, the, and those agencies looking at the education and training and the skills of people. And um, we don't need them looking at software licenses and vendors and different types of technology. We need to look at the bigger
0: picture and what is their plan for for skills, training, and education? Fantastic, fantastic answer and question. I'm going to steal your question and I'm going to ask. I'm going to ask you. That's why I asked it. I thought speed to an intelligent man here. What can what can I get out of him to ask her? But that's uh, that makes sense as well. I'd love to know how they view the last two decades. It's a hell of a long time for BIM and its uptake to I'm I'm guessing that where we are now is not where they had envisaged we would be because it just feels like it hasn't progressed far enough so I'm really looking forward to the that expe- conversation
1: The expectations were a lot higher than the the actual reality so and and again I I read something recently there was a survey done about people's use of data in construction and using it for planning and there was something like 60% of the respondents said they were using data for predicting what was going on the projects and I'm going that's not really what's happening. So, so the problem with all these surveys and everything else is people want to be seen to be progressive. But then when you're actually at the coalface, face, you realize there's people using data, but there isn't 60% of the industry using data. So a lot of the numbers get skewed and a lot of people are reporting stuff to kind of show they're making progress. But there's a lot of people like me who are a little bit more experienced and probably a lot more skeptical about what's going on. And, and I think for me, it's that issue of, is how are we dealing with the, the next generation and
0: skills development? I think that's fantastic. I think it's a really good way to look at it. We just need to get people far better skilled, far better educated on these key topics, BIM being one of them. Now, I would love to sit here and talk to you all day, Ronan. Sadly, we only have so long and I know that you want to run off to the pub and oh, wait a minute, you can't, can you? Yeah, I'm (laughs) going to get in the plane and
1: fly out of of, (laughs) of Saudi.
0: (laughs) It has been an absolute pleasure to have you on the show. I'll be sharing um, Ronan's details in the podcast description and um, all that left to be said, Ronan, is thank you so much for coming on the show and happy St. Patrick's Day to you. Thanks very much, Paul. And keep up the great work. I've, I've been listening to your podcast the last couple of weeks
1: and you are doing an awesome job and keep it up. It's, it's really good fun to listen to.
0: Oh, thank you very much, Ronan. That's very kind. And for anybody who is listening, it would be absolutely fantastic. Good for us. Um, helps us keep doing what we're doing. If you guys could leave us a uh, review, a rating, hopefully be five star, definitely for this episode with Ronan. That would be great. And uh, we will see you next week. Thanks very much.